You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. episode is brought to you by Youngstown Tile. For spectacular flooring, go bold, go local, go Youngstown Tile. And by River Rock at the Amp. Saturdays in the summertime, there's no other place to be than at the Amp in Warren. And before you go, stop by the Sunrise Inn for the best food in Warren. And by Rick Perillo, author of the new true crime thriller, There's More Bodies Out There. Available now on rickperillo.com. Welcome to the Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Greer. Tonight's episode, The Sugar War by Rick Perella. You're watching an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Guerrieri. Tonight's episode, The Jungle Inn. Today's show is brought to you by... As a reporter, Ray Spragel had seen a lot of things. He'd gone undercover to see the working conditions of coal miners in southwestern Pennsylvania. In 1938, his work detailing Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black's Ku Klux Klan ties would win him the Pulitzer Prize, the most illustrious award in journalism. During World War II, he would report from Europe and unearth a black market meat operation in Pittsburgh. After the war, he'd take the daring step of going undercover as a black man, traveling the Jim Crow South and detailing the prejudice and racism he saw firsthand. But nothing prepared him for a trip to Youngstown in 1939 to see the gambling and racketeering operating brazenly in the open. Your Eastern Ohio racket correspondent, Spragle wrote, having been around quite considerable in 30 years of newspaper work, thought he had seen pretty nearly everything and knew most of the answers. He now begs leave to report that he hadn't seen nothing. In a week-long series, he detailed the political corruption and indifference from law enforcement that allowed organized crime to flourish. The final installment was on the Jungle Inn, a gambling joint roadhouse and saloon with a state liquor license. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, the Jungle Inn operated brazenly on the edge of the city of Youngstown. Its parking lot was jammed. In addition to gambling, it offered entertainment, 
including at one point a singer from nearby Steubenville who would deal blackjack on the side. Hotels in downtown Youngstown operated shuttles to the casino, but after 13 years, the inn was shut down by state officials lobbied by a new administration in Youngstown. The village of Hall's Corners was conceived in infamy, said former Youngstown Police Chief Edward Allen, incorporated around the Jungle Inn in 1936. Liberty Township had voted to go dry, so a new municipality was incorporated to allow the Jungle Inn's owner at the time, Charles Sidor Jr., to get a liquor license. But it ultimately made the facility impregnable to local law enforcement. Trumbull County Sheriff Roy Hardman maintained a pattern of not-so-benign neglect about the inn, telling Spriggle, quote, I go home at night, I don't go to places like the Jungle Inn, end quote. Trumbull County Prosecutor Paul Reagan gave a similar answer, saying, I don't go to places like that, I mind my own business. The hamlet was a little more than 200 acres initially, with just nine residents. The Jungle Inn opened its doors in 1936, offering table games, bingo, slot machines, and bookmaking with horse results coming in thanks to the nationwide and later Continental Wire Service, which provided up-to-the-minute horse results of special interest to gamblers and bookmakers throughout the country. Spriggle noted that the parking lot for the Jungle Inn could accommodate 500 cars. Anything goes in the Jungle Inn, Spriggle reported. Poker, craps, chuckalock, kino, where 500 play at once, the biggest bookmaking joint in Ohio, 80 slot machines where you can play anything from a nickel to a half. Among the early employees at the Jungle Inn was the singing croupier, a Steubenville native and the son of an Italian barber. Dino Crescetti's job at the casino was to work the blackjack tables. He sang for free. His name was Americanized to Dean Martin, and following World War II, he went on to become one of the biggest stars in America and a big draw at Las Vegas casinos where he was known to deal blackjack when he wasn't singing. Charles Sador, who also served as mayor of Hall's Corners, may have been the initial operator of the Jungle Inn, but the real brains behind it were twin brothers who were called the Warlords of Trumbull County. Mike and John Farr were born on Christmas Day 1905 in Ottoman, Syria, and grew up in the Tremont neighborhood on the near west side of Cleveland. Both brothers were involved in bootlegging, and continued to deal in illicit alcohol even after Prohibition was repealed. John Farr served 14 months on a manslaughter charge in 1931 for the fatal shooting of Cleveland beer baron Larry Rubin before he was pardoned by Ohio Governor George White. Mike Farr had a 1932 weapons charge. At some point in the later 1930s, the Farrs gained prominence in the rackets in Trumbull County, with Mike Farr moving to a house on Kenilworth Avenue in Warren. The Jungle Inn was one of several illegal casinos just outside of urban areas in northeast Ohio. The Harvard Club was just outside the Cleveland city limits in nearby Newburgh Heights. Geauga County had the Arrow Club and Lake County the Mounds Club, run by former featherweight Blackjack McGinty, who would go on to be one of the initial owners of the Desert Inn Casino in Las Vegas, along with members of Cleveland's Mayfield Road Mob. The club's decor ranged from roadhouse to sumptuous nightclubs, attracting top entertainment and the crowds drew across all social strata and several states. Spraggle reported that in the parking lot when he visited, he could spot cars with license plates from Pennsylvania, Florida, Michigan, West Virginia, and Illinois. 
The Jungle Inn is famous wherever gambling men gather, he said dryly. Famed crime fighter Elliot Ness was named public safety director in Cleveland in 1935, and the following year, Cleveland Municipal Judge Frank Lausch was elected to the Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Bench. Both targeted the gambling halls around Cleveland. Ness closed the Harvard Club as one of his first orders of business in 1936. Undaunted, the club reopened in a new location on Harvard Road a month later. It would close for good in 1941. The Arrow Club closed in 1942. Governor John W. Bricker, who had served previously as the State Attorney General and would run for Vice President on the Republican ticket in 1944, threatened legal action. The club and its operators read the writing on the wall and closed. It would reopen after the war as the Pettibone Club. Also in 1942, the Jungle Inn closed, like the Aero Club, only temporarily. Owners said they were suspending operations for the duration of the war as part of their patriotic duty. In reality, it and other gambling establishments in Northeast Ohio were attracting attention from local law enforcement. It was also a good business decision, given a potentially dwindling customer base. Citizens were encouraged to spend money on war bonds, and it's not like they could go buy anything. The mobilization of the arsenal of democracy led to the suspension of production of most consumer goods. In June 1947, a front-page story in the Youngstown Vindicator said the Jungle Inn had resumed operations, with a facelift estimated between $70,000 and $80,000. In what was surely a coincidence, no Trumbull County officials could be reached for comment, save for veteran Sheriff Earl Bash, who said, we have no reports on the Jungle Inn. In that same day's paper, Myron Williams, a candidate for Youngstown Council President, said, we must bring back control of our police department from New York or Buffalo, a reference to the organized crime elements in the Mahoning Valley. The new owner of the Jungle Inn, on paper, was Steve Paparotis, a 23-year-old Navy veteran of the Pacific Theater in World War II. Because of the Jungle Inn's unique location in Hall's Corners, a municipality with a few dozen residents, it had grown to 400 acres by then. It was virtually untouchable. Hall's Corners had its own police force, which was, uh, let's say, unconcerned with the casino operating within its limits. Other local law enforcement agencies lacked jurisdiction. Ohio has no state police force. The Ohio Highway Patrol's main duty is traffic, not investigation. And the Trumbull County Sheriff's Office was just as indifferent as Hall's Corners law enforcement, to the point where a political candidate in 1947 referred to Warren as Little Chicago for its brazen corruption and organized crime. And business continued to boom at the Jungle Inn. In its last two years of operation, 1948 and 1949, Bets from horse racing were estimated at $3,000 daily. Craps tables made $252,000 in revenue in 1948 and $179,000 in 1949. Slot machine revenue was estimated at $808,500 in 1948 and 1949. All told, it was estimated that the Jungle Inn took in $1.3 million in that time period. But Bricker's threats against the Aero Club showed the force of state government could be brought to bear against places like the Jungle Inn. Soon, Paparotis's liquor license was under investigation, since the bar was so close to a gambling facility. The liquor license was revoked at the end of 1947, and the Jungle Inn closed briefly, 
reopening is Army-Navy Garrison 504, a private club that just happened to have games of chance. The name change enabled Trumbull County Sheriff Ralph Milliken to campaign for re-election in 1948, claiming he had shut down the Jungle Inn since it had been replaced with a legally chartered private club, even if it was the Jungle Inn in all but name. In 1947, Charles Henderson was elected mayor of Youngstown, and Myron Williams, who invaded against the out-of-town control of Youngstown police, was elected president of council. One of Henderson's first orders of business was the appointment of a new police chief, Edward Allen, who came from a police family in Erie, PA, and had graduated from the FBI Law Enforcement Academy. As far as Youngstown law enforcement went, he would be as pure as the driven snow more than willing to carry out the smash rackets rule platform on which Henderson had run and won election. Allen made it a point to meet with Milliken in an effort to get him to close the jungle in and recalled Milliken's attitude as, quote, not merely non-cooperative, but hostile, end quote. Don't you know it's election time? Allen recalled the sheriff telling him between outbursts, ultimately throwing Allen and the vice squad chief out of his office telling them, stay on your own dunghill. All Allen could do was cut telephone service to the jungle land. It hampered bookies taking bets, but customers still came out for slot machines, bingo, and table games. Finally, it was state authorities that closed the jungle land. Lash had gone from the bench to mayor of Cleveland in 1941 and was elected governor in 1945 and re-elected governor in 1948. He identified roadhouses and illegal gambling dens, which dotted the northern Ohio landscape as a priority. He started close to home with a raid on the infamous Mounds Club in Painesville in July 1949 by state liquor officials as well as the fire marshal, who declared the facility a fire truck. August 12, 1949, Friday on the week of the Trumbull County Fair, was a busy one at the Jungle Inn, with estimates of about a thousand people there trying their luck. Among the crowd were 20 state liquor control agents and at the stroke of 9 p.m., Anthony Ritkowski, chief of the Enforcement Division of the State Bureau of Liquor Control, took the microphone in the bingo room, identified himself, and ordered patrons to leave. State troopers directed traffic outside, while another standoff was brewing in the club. John Farr was on the premises, while Mike Farr arrived shortly thereafter. Ritkowski said later that Farr started yelling, Kill him, Jock, kill him! Krakowski looked up and saw a gun turret overlooking the gambling floor. Another agent, John Kosaver, went into the turret and disarmed a man there holding a pair of 12-gauge shotguns. Krakowski said the sheriff, who was at the fairgrounds, was informed of the raid within five minutes of him taking the mic in the bingo room. But it took more than two hours for Milliken to get to the jungle inn. In the meantime, gangsters gathered a crowd. Rutkowski estimated more than a hundred hoods outside the building, effectively trapping the unarmed liquor agents inside and accosting Vindicator personnel who had come to report on the story. A total of 36 employees and 700 patrons were detained, and 83 slot machines and other tables and a racing board were seized, eventually. Rutkowski said that Milliken actually stopped him from impounding the slot machines, ostensibly because of a question of jurisdiction. For days, coverage of the raid and ensuing fallout made banner headlines in papers throughout Ohio. Twenty people were charged and quickly pleaded guilty, 
and many were fined figures from $50 to $1,000, some of which was taken out of the slot machines, which were ultimately destroyed. State Fire Marshal Harry Callan, himself a former Youngstown fire chief, ordered the building closed as a fire hazard, unsurprising given the haphazard construction and wiring. But the building, which was owned on paper by Mike Farah's wife, was not raised. Instead, it turned into a factory for windows and doors. Lash removed Sidor from his office as mayor of Hall's Corners by the end of August 1949, and the municipality was de-chartered in 1950. Even after the inn's closing, it still held a spot in popular imagination. In 1952, when Charles Taft, scion of the noted Republican family from Cincinnati, challenged Lash for governor, a man said, quote, when you get to be governor, let him open up the jungle inn so the working man can have a place to relax at a game of dice, end quote. The Niles Roadhouse was referred to in news coverage as the Little Jungle Inn, and there were rumors the original would reopen after Lausch opted not to run again for governor in 1956 after serving four consecutive two-year terms. But incoming governor William O'Neill said he had even more law enforcement tools at his disposal than Lausch did, and the building ended up being reused as offices and a warehouse until a fire, believed to have been set, destroyed it in 1979. Following the closing of the Jungle Inn, the Farah brothers continued to operate on the shadows of respectable society. They owned an appliance store and a rug store. Stephen Betos, president of Betos Construction, said his interest in a Warren Plaza that he had built with developer Bill Kafaro had been sold to Kafaro and Mike Farah. Kafaro immediately denied that account. In the meantime, both Farah brothers faced tax problems with tax liens against both being taken to federal court. A ruling said the Faras and other partners in the Jungle Inn owed $350,000 in back taxes. The number was greatly reduced to less than $14,000 on appeal. Mike Farah found himself in trouble with the law again in 1959, accused of pistol-whipping Gene Blair, a former deputy sheriff and chairman of the Trumbull County Republican Party, in a dispute over the firing of a Board of Elections employee. Ultimately, Farr was found guilty, but sentenced to just a $200 fine and court costs. A dozen years after the Jungle Inn closed, another mob war was underway in the Mahoning Valley. Sandy Naples was dead, and dozens of bombings had rocked northeast Ohio, from Canton up to Warren. Mike Farr was believed to be a target in the war, but was innocuously working on his short game in the backyard of his home at the corner of South and Kenilworth Avenues in Warren on June 10th, 1961. He was going golfing that day, and while he was chipping, a sedan stolen three months earlier in Canton drove past, firing three times from a shotgun the police later found down the block. One shot hit the home, another kicked up a clod of dirt. The third wounded Farah, who was taken into the home by his wife and daughter, who were also home at the time and called police. He was taken to Trumbull Memorial Hospital, where he died within a couple hours from internal bleeding. Farah told police he didn't see who shot him and didn't know a motive. But Farah's oldest son laid the blame at the feet of Cleveland gangster Tony Dope Del Santer, who was regarded as a silent partner in the Jungle Inn on behalf of the Cleveland mob. The crime remains officially unsolved, but Jimmy Fratiano, a gangster turncoat, said in his autobiography that Del Santer killed Farah. Farah's funeral was in Tremont, 
Two Warren police detectives stood outside the church watching the mourners. Farr was buried in Lakeview Cemetery in Cleveland. His brother John was buried there 19 years later after dying of natural causes. While Mike Farr's violent death was front page news across Northeast Ohio, John Farr's was marked with a small death notice in the Vindicator. Reflective as much of his family's desire for privacy as the fact that a new era and a new mob war was at hand. Our sources for tonight's story are the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland Magazine, the Encyclopedia of Cleveland History, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the Pittsburgh Tribune Review, the transcript of the Kefauver Committee's testimony in Cleveland, the Warren Tribune Chronicle, the Youngstown Vindicator, the book Merchants of Menace by Edward J. Allen, the book Dino Living High in the Dirty Business of Dreams by Nick Toshes, and the book Welcome to the Jungle Inn by Alan May. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. To watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazingpodcastcompany. For more, visit our website at www.amazingpodco.com. If you enjoyed the show, please click the like and subscribe buttons and share it with your friends. It goes a long way in helping us produce more amazing content.